Hey, I'm Derek Barry. This is Glossolalia, a podcast about creative writing. This episode is a digression from our usual programs of digressions. And before you enjoy this curated content, I would like to read some advertisements. Mints, uh, that will hopefully implant some subconscious yearning to purchase like a mattress or a new bra or a meal delivery service. Today's episode is sponsored by Kraft Mac and Cheese. The Kraft Dairy Company has joined forces with CoverGirl to bring you makeup palettes derived from your favorite milk-based treats. Try Goodalicious Lip Gloss, Swiss Army Knife, Fingernail Polish, and Cheddar Blush. Only available in online stores. So you gotta go online and buy this products. Um, side effects may include cystic acne, bloating, cramps, and death. Cruelty-free products, of course, and they are tested only on, like, the animals that don't, like, really have consciousness. They're not, like, monkeys or, you know, anything that you might empathize with. Uh, so make sure to go to CoverGirl and Kraft Mac and Cheese and check out their new collaboration, Easy Cheesy CoverGirl. Now, on to the content. The 21st century is an era of content. You're going to hear me say that word a lot. You know, whether you're binge listening to your favorite murder podcast or binge watching the latest Netflix comedy, we're in this race to consume content. I'm a little daunted by that word. Consume implies that we don't really watch or appreciate art or art pieces, but we rather kind of slurp it up. It's like a, a 79 cent gas station slurpee that'll, that'll give us a brain freeze by the time we've finished consuming it. At the beginning of July, uh, the third season of Stranger Things premiered on Netflix. And of course, you know, I had, you know, binge watched the first uh, two seasons. My mom is really into Stranger Things, so she consumed all eight episodes in just three days. And afterwards, she would like follow me around the house and berate me for not watching the episodes. You know, I was I was busy. I was going to get to them. I was, you know, watching maybe one episode every other day. Um, but but I failed like I had kind of failed um, my duty to, to consume all these episodes fast enough. And, you know, I couldn't escape spoilers and and all the conversation because I, I hadn't kept up, right? I hadn't crammed all this new content into my brain at a suitable pace. It is perhaps easiest to understand the rise of bin culture through, like, an advent of, of something like Netflix. Um, the distribution schedule of releasing entire seasons of a television show in a single day ensure that folks will just consume the content as quickly as possible for fear of missing out or, or being spoiled like I was. Um, especially in online spaces, right? There's been a major shift to how we discuss pieces of art. Um, and, and I think it has to do with the word content. What's once, you know, we're considered poems or videos or audio essays have become instead content. Just one word, you know, content. And the people who make this, there's another term for them, content creator. I hate that phrase. It's nearly as loathsome as, as calling yourself like a creative online. Uh, you probably have seen that a lot say, you know, I'm a creative, but you're not really sure what sort of creative practice they actually have. They just kind of reblog things that match their own aesthetic values. Um, so, so, you know, we don't really have young writers or young poets or young videographers or young essayists. We have 
content creators. And, you know, we can blame it on BuzzFeed or we can blame it on the Huffington Post. Uh, but really, the beginnings of content started with the rise of the internet. It became, with the internet, so much easier to put content out there, right? Anonymous and user-created content, whether it was like a blog or a website or a YouTube video. In a similar way, right, podcasts have become really ubiquitous because there's tools like SoundCloud, uh, which is what I use, and it goes onto different um, podcast networks and can be spread as far as you want. Or there's also the Anchor app where someone can just download an app on their phone, speak into it, bam, podcast, done. Without gatekeepers, right, without uh, kind of editors and publishers, we can kind of just produce whatever we want. And in a way, that's really great, right? Um, I think that it, it helps us break the boundaries of what we consume and, and what we create because we're not uh, creating or writing or making videos for any sort of gatekeeper, right? Um, and, and that's a beautiful thing. Um, on the other hand, I think that that culture of content creation has been seized by large corporations, um, large news agencies and, and other sorts of, of, of content aggregators. Um, in a way, you know, I think that listening to content all the time is, is kind of a joy, right? There's real joy in consumption. I mean, who doesn't enjoy eating pizza, right? Um, who doesn't love just like listening to an entire narrative podcast in a single day? I know, you know, when Serial, the podcast first came out, you know, we, I, I, we, we were engrossed, right? We wanted to listen to it as fast as possible because we were really tied into that story. Um, but at the same time, you know, you can't only eat pizza, right? There's not a lot of nutrients in that pizza. In the same way, I think it's important to think of our art in that way. Um, consumption essentially is a capitalist construct. And by this, I mean we are meant to consume, right? We are shamed and punished if we do not consume. We are expected to consume constantly or else your time is being wasted. And the greatest sin in a capitalist society is to waste time. So content, things like podcasts, things like, you know, NPR reports and, and you know, BuzzFeed articles about what kind of cute dog, they fill in all of the silence in our lives. We don't have gaps. We don't have boredom. Instead, we have content, you know? We're not bored when we go to the local Piggly Wiggly and want to shop around. We just pop in our little surreptitiously inserted AirPods and we listen to um, an NPR podcast. And that can be, on one hand, really educational, but I think that there's a lot of danger to ignoring the silences. There's also some, some political and commercial implications. I'm going to talk really shortly about that because that's not really what this is about, but I think it's important to think about. So I want you to consider, for example, the third season of Stranger Things. No worries, I'm not going to spoil anything. Um, but in just eight episodes, the Netflix show managed to integrate several major brands into its narrative. Um, so these weren't advertisements, right? They're not commercials where they, you know, look away and say, hey, you know, buy a Slurpee today. It was just something that was very naturally integrated, but they were also paid for. This is known as native marketing. You see it a lot in movies, right, where just a brand seems to pop up again and again. In the latest Power Rangers movie, for example, I think that 
Krispy Kreme donuts, or maybe it was Dunkin' Donuts, who cares? One of the donuts places, you know, kept popping up again and again, and it became really egregious. And I thought it was also especially obvious in Stranger Things. So you start to see this plethora of brands advertised natively. You got Coca-Cola, they have this long diatribe about New Coke. And you'll notice if you go to stores that New Coke has been re-released in conjunction with Stranger Things. Um, Baskin Robbins is doing a kind of Stranger Things inspired tie-in based on the ice cream shop in which two of the characters work in inside the show. Um, you know, also, also retro Nikes, right? There's some like close-ups of Nikes. And, and of course, there's also um, tie-ins and native marketing for the 7-Eleven gas station. There's a big important scene in which someone drinks a Slurpee in a 7-Eleven gas station. So there's all these different ways where, you know, these brands just kind of get tied into the narrative. And I think that's one of the dangers, right? We're watching so fast that we're not necessarily aware of the subconscious kind of signals that were, you know, being given. Um, and also, especially online, our consumption habits have, you know, political and commercial implications, right? Uh, everything that you search for on Google, on Amazon, is collected as metadata, right? And it is used then to specifically advertise products back to us. So, I mean, if you've been hanging out around your friends, you have your iPhone on the table, and you start talking about, you know, I could really use some sunglasses. Then you go on to Twitter or Facebook, and bam, there's an ad for sunglasses, which is kind of creepy. But, you know, all of those histories, all those purchase histories, your credit card statements, you know, everything gets kind of sold um, to, to corporations in order to sell you back to you, right? Everything that you've paid for or thought about or wanted is analyzed and weaponized to create a, a commercial uh, product of you. And not just a commercial product, but also a political product. We saw that with the 2016, you know, uh, presidential race, in which a lot of that data is starting to be weaponized in a really scary way. But, you know, that's not the only thing I want to talk about. I want to talk more about, you know, how art has transformed into content and, and why that's really unhealthy for our artistic selves. Um, you know, art isn't just this superfluous thing, right? For me, writing poems isn't a hobby. It's a survival technique. You know, art is something that we use to help process our lives. It is something that we we want to embrace and, and use as a vehicle for so much more. Um, and at the same time, we want it to be useless. But, you know, the rise of content has provided a mechanization of art appreciation, uh, whether it be like reading books, right? There's these series of books, things that come out year after year after year after year, and you have to read them as fast as possible to keep up, right? In a similar way, listening to podcasts has become mechanized, right? We want to consume as much content as quickly as possible without processing it. Art is not simply content. Art is not meant to be consumed in the same manner as salty potato chips or slurp down to the last bite. So let's take, for example, uh, the joy of slow reading. Um, there's this sense among smart people that the smarter you are, the more quickly you will finish a book. But in my opinion, a book that's read slowly and digested over a month might teach us 
way more than dozens of books that could be skimmed in a single weekend. And each time, you know, we read a book, we sit down, we read a chapter. When we step away from that book, we allow ourselves time to better process, you know, the book. You know, think about the way that it applies to food, right? When we eat a portion of food, you can just keep eating quite a lot. Um, or you could you could eat and you could wait to digest the food. And, and I think it helps us enjoy the next portion a lot more. Otherwise, you just end up with a stomach ache. And the same holds true of books. Time away from the book gives you time to think about what you've read and integrate it into your life. Uh, reading a book in a single day may offer you more content, right? You might be consuming more story, but not necessarily more enjoyment. Let's break it down even more. Um, this is a really common uh, experience of encountering art in a museum. So you go to an art museum and you wanna see everything inside of it. But I think that is the wrong way to approach an art museum. There's this tendency to just rush through and glimpse every piece of art in the place. And we wanna make sure that we've gotten to appreciate everything, right? So then we can kind of like cross the museum off our to-do list. We have seen it and we have consumed it. But here's a small suggestion. Next time that you go to an art museum, just slow down. Don't try to look at every piece of art. Don't worry about it. Just wander through. Find a few pieces of art that speak to you, right? So while you're doing your wondering, something will, will catch your eye. Almost definitely, right? You'll see something and go, ooh, that's, that's interesting. And then what I want you to do is approach that painting and just spend time there. Look hard. Study it. You could read the text. You could ask questions to people working at the museum um, and engage with the art, right? Engage with it intellectually. You could think, oh, like, hmm, how do I think this got made? You know, you might not know, right? You might not know at all, um, but you could think about it and then you could read it and then think about why you would have thought differently. Um, consider how the piece makes you feel and what stories it reminds you of, right? Everything that we've ever experienced, we bring to art, we bring to stories. And that's part of the art, right? And we look at it and think, okay, what other mediums or pieces of art or stories does this remind me of? And then that way we truly engage with that piece of art. I mean, don't just spend a minute, spend like 15 minutes with each piece of art. Do that for a couple pieces of art and then reflect on what you've seen and then leave. And in the next couple weeks, you know, think back to the art, right? You really engage with it. So, so let whatever lessons you've learned, whatever thoughts you've had, integrate themselves into your life. And then in a couple weeks, you could always go back, right? Maybe it's your local art museum. And what's beautiful is you haven't consumed all of the art in the building, right? You've only seen a small fraction of the art, but you've really engaged with the art, right? You've got a real experience. Art is not content. It's not a Netflix series. And consumption, right, just seeing something is not reflection, so let's change our relationship with art uh, from one of consumption to one of engagement, one that invites our whole selves into the process. And, and the beauty of that is that when you're looking at art 
You don't need to know anything about the artist. You don't need to know about art history or art theory. You just need to look and listen. And if you want to dig into that context, you can dig in. You have time, right? And if you don't want to dig into the context, you know, if you want to like rely on your own intuition, you can also do that. And then, you know, whether it be a book or whether it be a museum or just a single painting, you're going to turn again and again and get this fresh and fulfilling experience each time. We shouldn't just focus on, on finishing, right? We shouldn't just focus on having seen something. We want to truly look and not just breeze by all the paintings. And let us approach our entire lives in this way. Let's return again and again with renewed attention and bewilderment, turning against the avaricious binge and the consumption of content, the shallow looking without seeing. In the coming weeks, I want to challenge you to not accept artistic appreciation as mere consumption. Turn against consumption. Take your time. Take breaks from reading. Allow your thoughts to digest and integrate. I promise you, it will deepen your reflection and your understanding. And in the meantime, I will be applying my new craft cheese nail polish. But I'll be doing it very slowly.